soul-shaping, how the New Testament preaches to Christians. There are three messages in this series. This is the second. This is the morning series. Uh, tonight, there are going to be two Sunday nights. I used to do this annually, and I've, I've, I think I've gone a little more than a year, and I've, it bugged me a bit. I'm going to do two Sunday nights looking at the subject of abortion. Abortion and God's love for the helpless. So that'll start tonight. There'll be study notes for everybody. I think it's a timely subject. I think it's an important subject. Even if you're not a regular Sunday nighter, come. Come tonight, and uh, if you're a regular Sunday nighter, phone somebody that you know doesn't come Sunday night and bug them in Jesus' name and uh, invite them out. 2 Peter 1, verses 12 to 15, the title, Reminded of Things We Already Know. Reminded of things we already know. Here's the text. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. We went to 11 last Sunday morning. Therefore, I intend always, so it's on purpose, to, to remind you of these qualities. There's the remind word. Though you, you know them, they're not ignorant of them, and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body, this is Peter, he knows that he's, uh, his end is drawing near, as long as I am in this body to stir, stir you up by way of reminder. Okay, so there's one, and there's, how can I do this? There's two. Can you see that? Reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body, isn't that an interesting way of talking about his physical death? The putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Do you remember that conversation? We'll look at it. It's in John's Gospel. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. So that's three. You can see what he's doing, eh? Remind. Here's a theme. Reminder. Recall. So it, you don't, it's not rocket science. You, you can read that and say, okay, Peter, what, what are you getting at here? There's obviously something here that's important, and it doesn't bother you at all, though, though we, we already know these things. You don't feel embarrassed at all to say, I'm going to hammer them out again for you. Let's pray. Your word is just so precious. How dark we would be without your word. What would we know about the cross without your word? What would we know about the resurrection without your word? What would we know about the second coming without your word? So we rely on it. We rely on it, and at the same time, we take it for granted. And so surely this, 
This has to be an important topic for a church like ours. We know a lot of things, so this idea of reminding has relevance. Reminders aren't for the ignorant. Reminders are for the people who already know. And so it takes more of the grace of the Holy Spirit to make us interested in reminders than in brand new truth. Church, look at me just for a second. I hadn't planned on praying that. It's, it takes more of the grace of God to keep us interested in reminders than in discovering something brand new, right? Discovering something brand new has a natural oh moment to it. But being reminded of something, the first in- inclination is, uh, yeah, yeah, I know how that goes. And so Jesus, help us not to do that. In your name I pray, amen. I suppose there's nothing more characteristic of human life than our tendency to um, forget the things we already know. Not forget in the sense of not knowing at all, but in terms of keeping something vivid, keeping the impact of something alive. We can learn great truths, we can study important subjects, we can meditate on and ponder the great thoughts of others through through language and, and, and words, printed words in all sorts of electronic forms and in books. Books are still good. But we also know that with rare exceptions, maybe you don't have this problem. Let me tell you what I find. I find that the things I put into my head don't stay there. Has anybody else had that problem? They're not always right where I filed them. And there can just come a smog, not from never having learned, but a smog, a fog from not applying and keeping alive something that was learned formerly. Peter knows this. I think I showed you that's what this text is about. He knows that truth we once learned doesn't always stay learned. And so, as Peter comes to the close of this section at the end of verse 15, he knows that many people will be thinking that he hasn't actually said anything new. He hasn't been unfolding any new doctrine or new teaching, and yet he still wants them to know the importance of his words. He wants them to to know that they aren't above hearing. They aren't above hearing what he's saying. So there's a reminding, always there's a humility required in it. He wants them to remember that spiritual growth and blessing come more from remembering the things they know than learning new stuff. So Peter is saying, not in these words, these are my words, the only thing harder, the only thing harder than discovering truth, the only thing harder than discovering truth is 
holding on to truth. And that's what this text this morning is, is all about. Point number one. Peter wants them to know the difference between knowing truth and possessing it. You see it in verse 12. He says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them, and are established in the truth that you have. In other words, there's nothing shaky about their knowledge. There's something interesting in the way Peter says, you've already been established in these truths. This is not the first time you've heard this, but, but now it's time... Here's spiritual growth, church. Now it's time to monitor what effect is this having on my life. Do you see the difference? What effect is this having on my life? He's going to go back to what he stressed in verse 8. Let me just show you that. For if these qualities are your... Why is this reminding so important? If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. It's, they have knowledge, but unfruitful in your knowledge. And so, so Peter probes... These, the things that you know. Did, did you go through the whole book of Hebrews recently? The, the things that you know from God's Word, are they diminishing things or are they increasing things? Are you becoming more and more fruitful in the things that you've heard? Or... or this isn't a nice word, is it? Ineffective, like useless. Is, is, is the stuff you know, is it useless to you? Or is it transforming to you? Is your Christian life just... Is your Christian life just filling up with church downloads and Bible downloads? Information. Or is nourishing still happening? I have to think about that. For me, I mean, I have to think about that. That's the issue here. Peter is reminding him of things they already know. Perhaps at one time they knew them with a degree of passion. You ever talk to a new Christian who's just discovered life in Christ and they're just bubbling all over the place and you've been walking with Jesus 40 years and you wonder, what's this goofball so excited about? That's what Peter's talking about. Perhaps at one time they knew these truths with a passion, but truths lose, they don't lose their truthfulness. What they lose is their impact, their grip. We get used to things that we know. We... we I can carry around precious truth like I carry around this, around my middle, to no benefit at all. And so Peter probes. Is nourishing increasing? 
Is, dis- is, is joy increasing? Is application increasing? Is self-denial increasing? Is worship growing? Is devotion warming? Is service extending? Is sacrifice more joyful? Peter says, I don't want you knowing these things like you know how to breathe. I want you to think about these things. I want you to relish them. I want you to cherish them. So the idea here is not just to learn truth, but to, it's always this issue, church. Treasure it. Treasure it. I think discovering truth isn't the end of the journey. Finding truth isn't the end of the journey. Do you remember how Jesus tried to drive this home? Jesus has a one-verse parable. It's one of his great ones. He says there's a, there's a guy out in the field. Remember this story? Don't know what he's doing, plowing along in the field, and all of a sudden, clunk. And he bends down, and he's wiping the dirt away. What is this? And he pulls it up. And Jesus says, it's treasure. We're not told what it is, treasure. And he puts it back in the ground. And Jesus says, and here's the phrase, in his joy. I read that parable for years and never put the hit on those most important words. And in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he had. There is no sacrifice when there's this treasure, right? In his joy, he sells all that he has. It's the kingdom. And Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of God is like. And Peter's reminding them, that's what disappears right there. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Believe in the resurrection? Yes. Believe he's coming again? Yes. In his joy... There's nothing as good as this. There's nothing as exciting as this. Any any change, any sacrifice, anything I have to do is it's insignificant compared to this. That's what Jesus says. And that's what disappears. That's what disappears. Point number two, in addition to our natural forgetfulness, oh, this is so important, we live in a world that is increasingly, I'm throwing that word in, increasingly hostile to the incubation of spiritual truths in our minds and hearts. In other words, it's not just my natural uh, fallenness, finiteness, the limitations of my heart and mind as the Holy Spirit works to renew them. It's not just that. I have, to take, I have to take the environment in which I live, I have to take that into account. Isn't it interesting that Peter writes about this? Do you remember Peter? Jesus 
before the garden, before the cross, he says, you guys, you're all going to, you're all going to scatter. One of you is going to betray me. And Peter, Peter, Lord, even if everybody else forsakes you, you don't know the kind of quality you have here. Not me. I am with you to the end. Well, of course, he's sitting there at Jesus' feet. He's with the disciples. The text says they sing a hymn. It's a church thing. Oh, love you, Jesus, with all my heart. In the garden, Jesus is gone. Peter's alone. What's different? Well, the environment's totally different. And before the rooster crows, never heard of Jesus. That's Peter. Curses ever knowing him, one of the gospel writers says. We, we can, maybe not to that extent, maybe not in the same way, but boy, oh boy, isn't it easy to love Jesus here? And you're the only Christian in that philosophy class at the university, that sociology class. There's nothing automatic about retaining the power of spiritual convictions in a world like ours. Jesus actually talked about this. He talked about it in Matthew chapter 13. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes. Isn't just that word, he comes. He's... Do you get the impression he's looking at people, what they do with spiritual truth? Do you get that impression? And he, and he comes. You know where he comes? He comes right into 1000 Gorham Street. And he, and he sits right in here. Not just the Holy Spirit here. And, and if, he can, if he can help people not to understand it, I don't think that means not getting uh, the idea that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Understand means, means to, to feel the weight of it, to be moved by it, to have it affect your soul and your heart. When, when Satan sees that, that somebody can be distracted with a text or an email, and we'll just, keep that from, we'll just keep that truth from really landing. Jesus says, he comes. What does he do? He snatches away. What has been sown. This isn't a person that hasn't heard. It's been sown in the heart. And so Jesus was careful to show that there's... My, my point here is there's more than just natural forces involved in holding on to spiritual truth. It's a huge problem in the church. Because it's in the church that a lot of the seed gets sown. They're not sowing God's Word over at Upper Canada Mall. You know, orange is the new black, isn't sowing the seed of the Word. Oprah isn't sowing the seed of the Word. So Jesus is talking about what happens when, when people open their Bibles and when they, when they learn and when they study and when they go to church where there's a, a real concentrated effort made to get God's Word into people's minds. And he says, he comes, Satan comes. That's the word Jesus uses. He works to undervalue not the truthfulness of the word. He works to under, under, 
to, to undersell the value, undervalue the worth of the truth. That's what he does. Paul says in Corinthians, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in their case. Listen, the God of this world, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing, not the truthfulness, the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. Do you know what Satan wants to do this morning? He doesn't care if you believe in the inspiration of Scripture and you can quote it. What Satan wants is to keep you from seeing glory in it. No wonder Jesus said, oh, it's like treasure. Never forget its treasure. Never let that slip away. Peter says, I'm reminding you of this. I took too long. Point number three. There is a difference There's a teaching here about how hearts are stirred up to fresh love and passion for God. How does it happen? It's surprising, really, because it does sound quite ordinary. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, I love this phrase, to stir you up. See, this, when I see that, I think of revival. Like, like, I think of something, Acts 2, that's what I think of. Holy Spirit poured out. And that's great, no argument from me. But when I think of that, I don't, I don't usually link it to this. Let me just remind you of some stuff. And, and, and Peter says, I want, I want to stir you up. I want to stir you up. A lot of people get nervous the Bible uses those kinds of words. Sounds like Peter was just trying to work people up into some kind of emotional frenzy, maybe. And I guess there are different ways in which people can be stirred up. There's a kind of stirring up that just involves emotional excitement. It's not a bad thing, but it's not usually long-lived. Can't always control our emotions. Jesus had crowds. John talks about Jesus. He didn't get excited when a large crowd followed him when he was healing the sick. And John says Jesus knew, he knew what was in their hearts. They just liked, he'd turn, he'd turn loaves, uh, you know, create loaves and fishes, multiply the loaves. He'd feed the crowds. He'd heal the sick. And people were just drawn to it. And John says Jesus wasn't all that excited about that. He says that. And then there's a deeper kind of stirring up. It's the kind of stirring up you do when, uh, if, if the dressing isn't already on the salad at home, and you might have it. In the old days, they used to, remember those containers? They're clear containers, and you'd have all the oils, and, and then you'd shake it up before you put it on. You have to be old, I guess, to remember that. You're not really adding anything new to the content. Nothing's changed. You're just taking things that have settled at the bottom, dropped out of circulation, and you're bringing them to life again. That's what Peter's talking about. So the mind is the bottle. The truths of Scripture are like the salad dressing. 
Peter says he wants to come and, and take the truths that have settled and drifted out of awareness, and he wants to bring them to life in their minds again. So all the flavor, all the flavor comes back. It, it seeps into everything they do. So, so please notice, in doing this, Peter, wise, old, experienced Peter, he's saying something important, and, and he's saying something quite unpopular. He's saying most of us need something other than what we think we need. He's saying the kind of excitement and power we're looking for in our Christian life isn't probably going to be found in some brand new thing. It's going to be found in some very old things that are stirred up in our minds and hearts. It's going to be found in things that are known but not thought about. Look, look, look at what Peter has been talking about in these opening 11 verses because there's a context here. When he says, I want to remind you of these things, he tell, he's been telling us what the things are. It's not undefined. What things? Peter, I want to remind you of these things. What things? Verse 1 of this chapter. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And you should think of yourself as a servant too. There is nothing more important. Maybe you've been a Christian a year. Maybe you've been a Christian 75 years. Here's a universal truth. The most important thing about Don Horbin is how instantly, instantly obedient am I to the voice of God when he speaks. There is nothing else about my life that matters as much as that. I'm a servant. And you are too. In verse 4, he says, you need to grow in your knowledge of God's precious, magnificent promises. No, nothing will build hope and faith and confidence in your life Strength in persecution, strength in temptation, then filling your life with the promises of another kingdom. Verses 3 through 7, he's telling that they, have to, they need to push back spiritual inertia. That's where he said, and you know, let me just read them quickly, 3 through 7. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So the excuses are gone. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us, I went over this in my Christian ed class, granted to us his precious and very great promises. So there's what we've been given. Everybody see that? That's what he gave us. So what about these promises? So that, so there's the connector, through them. What's the them? Say it out loud. It's the promises. Good. Through them, you may become, look what he says here, partakers of the new nature through the promises. Do, do you stop and think about what pondering the promises of God can do for your life? 
a new nature. Look what else happens. Escape the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Do you have desires that you find are hard to, you know, you, you, you know you're supposed to crucify self, you know you're not supposed to be this way, and, and you, you just go, bad, Don. Don't, don't be like that. And Peter says, that's not going to work. The strength for denying self comes from seeing the, the preciousness of precious and great promises. You, you fill your mind with them so your heart is drawn to them. Once you start changing the affections of your heart, it's easier to change the actions of your body. Because you don't just pursue righteousness, you start to prefer righteousness. You get your life going in a different direction. Where's that come from? Those promises, Peter says. How many promises right now could you recite? You don't have to answer that. (laughs) I'll give you an answer. The degree to which you're experiencing a new nature and the degree to which you conquer sinful desires, Peter says, is attached to your ability to latch on to the promises of God. The promises are precious. That's the word Peter uses. And, and I know I'm wandering a bit here, but it's important. Precious. Remember the Jesus, what's he find in the field? The treasure and in his joy. Why is it that he can sell everything he has? If he hadn't found the treasure, right? If he hadn't found the treasure and someone said, you have to sell all that you have and buy that field, he would have been outraged. Correct? But he's seen treasure in the field. That's what gives him the the ability to sacrifice everything else joyfully. Peter says, we have fallen desires, wrong desires. We're, We're not wired right all the time. And you can try and just will your way out of that mess. But that's like, that's like selling everything you have to buy the field without the treasure in the field. When you see the promises, when you see the promises, the motivation changes. I do this in my Christian ed class. I get in trouble because now I'm not going to finish. Our worldviews need to be converted around the preciousness of the promises. Our recreation needs to be converted. Our entertainment needs to be converted. Our social lives need to be converted. Is your money converted? I know you are. Is your money saved? At least to my fourth point. There is the constant danger of conforming to the spirit of our age and beginning to treat absolute revealed truth as though it were just a matter of changing human opinion. I know that's a long point. It's so important to me, I want to just take a minute to deal with it. Let me show you two verses at the same time. We'll kill, the Bible says, kill two birds with one stone. Okay, that's not in the Bible anywhere. I thought you'd all. Look at one twelve. Therefore, I always intend to remind you of these qualities. So he's going to remind them of these qualities. That's the 
3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, those verses, those qualities. I'm going to remind you, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. And then 15, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time, that's important, right there, to recall these truths. When I talked about the promises of God, the truths of God's word, Peter says these truths are to be held so consistently and rehearsed so constantly that they can be summoned to remembrance anytime, anywhere. I, I find that convicting when I read that. That you'll do better You'll do better sitting, sitting in your basement at the computer screen, tempted to look at something that you shouldn't look at. You will do better successfully. You'll be more successful. Let's do it that way. If right at that moment you have six promises from God's Word. And if you don't have them there, your toast. So he says, he says, you may be able at any time to recall these truths. Uh, so it's a working knowledge of them. And Peter wants these people, he says, he wants them to be established in these truths. He wants them grounded. He wants them fixed there. And the very words mean he, he doesn't want them roaming from one idea to another, one, one fad to another. Spiritual fads are for rookies. He says the gospel they believe has to be his gospel. That's in verse 1. And he says that the truths that he's proclaiming have to become a settled conviction in their lives. Established. You're not debating anymore. You've got a foundation. You're not, you're not spiritually nomadic looking for some new thing somewhere. And then in verse 15, he says these same truths are to be recalled to their minds long after he's gone. See that in verse, verse 15? I will make every effort so that after, after my departure... You may be able at any time to recall these truths. Nothing changes when Peter's gone. Nothing gets added. Nothing gets deleted. The content isn't up for grabs. This is something desperately lacking in the mindset of the church today. People talk like somehow we've outgrown many of the things revealed in Scripture. I know there's a number of things that are more objectionable that the Bible says that nobody objected to 50 years ago. Get what I'm saying? There's all sorts of things in the Bible that the world around you is going to object to you quoting. What are you going to do? Are you backing off? Changing your mind? Modifying? Peter says you're established in these things. Everything objectionable, get screened through the tastes of the surrounding culture, and if, if we aren't comfortable with it, or if someone else isn't going to be comfortable, well, we, we can adjust. 
Mark Twain said, those are my convictions. If you don't like them, I have others. <laughs> Peter says, no. Whether I'm here, after I'm gone, you're, these are the truths. Now, you don't come to think. You don't come to think in that relativistic way by accident. In the last 25 years, with the odd exception... Every person in this sanctuary has been taught by people who were relativists. We've all been taught that only narrow-minded, judgmental, intolerant people think one way is objectively better than another and are established in biblical truth. Point number Pass a pure living faith on to those who come after you. Let me clean this up. But I like 14 and 15. I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I'll make every effort so that after my departure you may be able to recall at any time these, these things. Let me just focus on this. What should people do when they know they're going to die? It, it seems that Peter had some very specific knowledge. We're not told a lot about it, but he had some very specific knowledge about his coming death. He says Jesus told him about it. We know a little bit about that, Here's where it happened. It's in John chapter 21. Oops. Let me do that again. Jesus is the speaker. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. Another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John, editing, later on, of course, after this, after this conversation, John says, this he said to show what kind of death he, this is Peter, this, this is Jesus, this he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. Now in our text, Peter says, Jesus added, some details about when this would come because Peter says in that 15th verse, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as the Lord Jesus made clear to me. How should people live when they know they're going to die? And if you think I'm talking about Peter, anybody in this room not sure that you're going to die? I mean, apart from Jesus coming back, anybody in this room think you're not going to die? You are. Everybody's going to die. The death rate in Canada is the same as everywhere else on planet Earth. One per person. What should dying people give their lives to? Now, you, you might not know the time of your departure, like Peter did, But you know 
you know how soon departure can come. You know the shortness of life. I always say to people, I say, you know, I talk to people all the time in the lobby and someone's like 30 and I'll say to them, you just, you just wait. It'll seem like next Friday and you're going to be 65. Isn't that how it goes? Just, and they grease the slope <laughs> later on in life. You, you don't have time to give your life to everything. What, what, what should dying people concentrate on? Peter tells us. I want to influence people for Christ long after I'm gone. I want to build Christ's kingdom in other people's lives even after I'm not around to see it. You have friends, you have a husband or a wife, you have children, every life touches another. Paul says we don't, we don't live to ourselves. Interestingly, he says we don't die to ourselves. We don't die to ourselves. You ever think, about, what's, what's that mean? Take time to instill godly example. Take time to instill godly teaching. Let, let your words brace people against ungodliness around them, even if they don't want to hear those words, and that's increasingly going to be the case. Give to world missions. You can plant seeds around the world that can germinate and reproduce long after you've gone to glory. Make your example unforgettable. Leave a pattern that is so clearly dedicated to another kingdom that people feel small living for this one. Last verse. Three minutes left. We studied this not long ago. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. That, that's Get this. Put this down. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit. And then you have this contrast. They, that's the person dying, may rest from their labors. They're, they're done working. And, and yet, their, their deeds follow them. So, so there's rest, and, and, yet, and yet their deeds are, are still living. Let me tell you what this verse isn't saying, and I think people misread it this way. Their deeds follow them. This is not just their reputation. You know as well as I do, People manufacture all sorts of wonderful things to say about people at their funerals. Everyone turns into a saint. I feel badly. If I were to die next week and there was some big funeral here at the church, oh, I would love to hear the nice things people would say about me. This isn't that. That's not what he means. This isn't about words following them after their death. This is about their deeds. 
That they, they so glorified Christ in everything they did that others, other people were given courage to do the same thing. I don't care what's said. Other people will be given courage. Peter says, after I'm gone, after I'm gone, I, I want what I'm doing now to enable you to lay down your life for Jesus just like I'm laying mine down for Jesus. That's what I want, he says. So glorify Christ in everything that other people will be given the courage to do the same after you're gone and you can't do anything better with your life than that. And everyone said? Let's pray.